0: A few weeks ago I told you as we progress through Luke that we'd end up getting to the topic of money. So I forewarned you after the first of the year, if you want to strategically take your vacation, you might want to do so. If you're here today, it's not my fault. Let's begin reading Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus... Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And Jesus told them a parable, saying... The land of a rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, drink, eat, and be merry." But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. Well, to begin, two of the biggest shams of our day, folks, are first, you can manipulate Jesus to increase your finances. That's number one. Number two, if your career is thriving and and your bank accounts are are overflowing, somehow that would ensure God has shown you His favor. Um, So this can be an important lesson because the majority of preaching today, folks, uh, falsely suggests that Jesus, that God always wants you to be healthy wants you to be increasingly ever more wealthy. That error is often referred to as the prosperity gospel. Meanwhile, as we've already been observing in Luke, Jesus has important things to say, important things that God wants us to hear and to take very seriously. He's been teaching these crowds in chapter 12. First of all, that just the infinite cost of denying him. That's verse 9. He also instructed people not to fear men. Don't fear those who can can take your life, who can kill your body. Fear God in heaven. That's verse 4. Then Jesus, as we talked about last week, warned against blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That was that nasty leaven of the Pharisees. So I believe that most of us would agree this scene is one of utmost gravity. Very serious teaching. Oh, I almost forgot to mention that the uh, Pharisees and the lawyers were attempting to entrap Jesus so that they could kill him. Very serious, very serious context. Meanwhile, calling out from this crowd, this very large crowd that has gathered to listen to Jesus teach, calling out, I like to refer to him as Mr. Genius. All right? Mr. Genius. And Mr. Genius. He, in essence, gives a command to Jesus. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Boy, talk about incredibly bad timing. And in his brilliance, he hatched this idea that this great teacher of Nazareth hatched this idea that he might become useful for his own selfish gain that's what he saw in Jesus and what you could see or what we might see here is the birthplace of both the prosperity and the social gospels number one the prosperity gospel Jesus can be manipulated to advance my financial condition number two the social gospel that Jesus notorious reputation for for demonstrating and showing compassion that that reputation that Jesus has can be twisted so as to demand for myself what lawfully belongs to somebody else. Concerning this man, an old-time theologian he named Alfred Edersheim, from the 1800s, a converted Jew or completed Jew who became Christian, writes this. Now this actually is genius. Quote, Christ had not only no legal authority for interfering, but the Jewish law of inheritance was so clearly defined, and we may add, so just, that if this person had any just or good cause, there could have been no need for appealing to Jesus. Hence, it must have been covetousness in the strictest sense which prompted it, perhaps a wish to have, besides his own share as a younger brother, half of that additional portion which by law came to the eldest son of the family. Unquote. The law was so was so detailed on inheritance and who gets how much and what that, that he'd have no need if he really had a cause to come to Jesus. The the legal system, the, the priestly system of that day would have Would have gladly taken up his cause if it were just. Under the Mosaic law, the eldest son, he received a double portion of the inheritance. That was the law. And if Edersheim is right, and and I believe the text provides no other conclusion, then Mr. Genius was commanding Jesus to to violate God's law by implying, I don't care what God's word says, I want what I want. And I'll even insert Jesus in between in order that I might demand what I want. This is the covetousness of desiring something that doesn't belong to you, rightfully belongs to someone else. Uh, You'd rather take what they have than earn it yourself. Um, Folks, God's word still rings true today. Uh, If you're unwilling to work, neither shall you eat. And everyone is to work with their own hands and eat of their own bread. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, we don't covet other people's stuff. The social gospel, uh, in effect, a manifestation of socialism, that is in effect what it is, demands that which others own be redistributed to me even if I didn't earn it. And, and in practice, the social gospel inserts the name of Jesus. And declares, you know, I'm going to demand what you have be redistributed to me. And even if I have to, I'll, I'll insert the courts to take it. Because I've determined that's what Jesus would want. Jesus would want everyone to share equally. No, it's not. No, it's not. Because God has already said, work hard with your own hands and be satisfied eating your own bread that's what the Word of God says. Um, so any form of socialism which would forcibly demand that everyone divide what they belongs uh, to them, that's covetous, folks. That is covetous. Uh, the Bible's very clear in asserting private property rights, Old Testament and new, if God wants to sovereignly redistribute according to His will, using divine methodology. I've seen that occur. God has done that. But normally, under normal conditions, God redistributes wealth to you and to me through us getting out of bed in the morning and going to work. That's how wealth is redistributed to us, to earn a wage. Not by inserting Jesus into the picture, forcibly uh, to take what rightfully belongs to somebody else. Jesus is not in the business of that. It's greed. It's greed. Uh, Now, those who enjoy riches, Jesus is not going to let them escape in this passage either. All right? And we'll see that in the ensuing context. But whether we are rich or whether we are poor or somewhere in between, wanting something for nothing and desiring a sedentary lifestyle of, of lying around, watching the tube, hanging out, eating and drinking, a life of ease. It's not what the Bible uh, supplies as a noble pursuit. It's not a noble pursuit. Instead, lethargy only eases the slide into sin. King David learned that as he was napping in the middle of the day when everyone was out at war. Lethargy eases the slide into sin. And this principle, it doesn't discriminate uh, to whether you are poor and unwilling to work. Remember, text always says unwilling. I like to always provide that caveat. There are some people who physically can't and we're to take care of them. Uh, But those who are unwilling to work, it doesn't discriminate from them, from those who've already made their millions and presume that, that God's just fine with them lying around. Um, God's not. There always remains more work to be done. Always remains more work to be done. But before we get to uh, the parable, Jesus becomes indignant with Mr. Genius. He says, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now just imagine if Jesus had succumbed even to this one request. Further requests would quickly come from the crowd. They would dominate his time. The the priority of his teaching ministry would have to be set aside and and, and it would devolve into one of settling just petty disputes. Instead, we're, we're going to find that Jesus relies on the preaching of the Word of God to resolve all disputes. The Word of God tells us what positions were to take, and how to settle disputes. Because what we actually need, folks, what we need is the wisdom found in the Bible. That's what we need. And then if you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, you ought to be able to apply that to your particular situation. What the Bible teaches to our peculiar circumstances. So Jesus responds to this man by giving broad principles in this parable. Broad principles applicable uh, not only to Mr. Genius, but to everybody in the crowd. That's why Jesus responds to them in the plural. He's responding to this man's question to everybody. Verse 15, Then Jesus said to them, this is the answer, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Beware of every form of greed. The Greek term for greed, pleonexia, folks, it has three basic connotations, three basic meanings. These are what they are. Having more, receiving more, and wanting more. And Jesus says, be on your guard. Not on guard against others. Guard against self. This, this was the mistake of this man. He thought that he needed to guard against his brother. But The, tr- the term translated, be on your guard, it's, it's one word in the Greek. It means to restrain oneself. Be on your guard against yourself. Restrain ourselves from what? Jesus tells the crowds and he tells you and I today, Uh, to restrain ourselves from an attitude of having more, receiving more, and wanting more. So it doesn't take a genius to recognize it becomes impossible to harmonize Jesus' words here to the dogma of the prosperity gospel which declares its noble religion To chase financial and material prosperity. That somehow it's noble to try and go out there and get as much as you can. And by the way, God wants you to have it. What a lie. What a false gospel. Jesus warns against wanting more. Why? Because life is not found in, nor does it consist of, an abundance of possessions. This was the mistake of Mr. Genius. His heart was deceived, folks, into believing if he could have a slightly larger inheritance, then life would finally be fulfilling. If I just had a little more. But already, what he has, it doesn't cause him to be fulfilled. In fact, if he's the inspiration to this parable, his barns are already full. Talk about that a little more next week. To believe that more money, that more luxurious possessions can make your life fulfilled is a complete lie. Complete lie. Expensive automobiles break down just like a Chevy. Only they cost three times more to repair. But you know, that's an easy problem to remedy. All I got to do out... All I got to do is either buy a Ford <laughs> or go out and buy and earn more money. That's the remedy. The boats are the swimming pool, folks. I've enjoyed both. I've enjoyed both. They require perpetual maintenance, supplemental insurance. No problem. All I got to do is go out and struggle to earn a little more. Beach homes, cottages, lake properties. Beautiful to enjoy if you can ever actually schedule any time to enjoy cleaning it. Or you can hire somebody to clean it, to maintain it, to do the repairs and for the insurance. All you've got to do is discover a way to make a little more. This man, he, he bought the lie that just a little more will finally make his life better. But it won't. It won't. Reality is quite the opposite. In fact, everything that we acquire beyond the basic essentials merely complicates our lives exponentially. Suggest God, who walked the earth for some 33 years without even acquiring His own bed. That's what Jesus looked like. And as the world preaches, I want it all... And I want it now. Reality and common experience responds. And the more that I have, the more that I have to worry about. That's the truth. That's the truth. Folks, do you honestly believe that the celebrities, the, the movie stars, the, the athletes with multi-million dollar contracts, do you actually think they have a more abundant life than you? If life is so abundant for them, why do most of these beautiful people, some of them strikingly beautiful, why are they repeatedly getting divorced and then remarried over and over again? Why are they liquidating homes, filing for bankruptcy? Why are the suicide rates so commonly recorded on the evening news? Is it because they found the answer? Is it because they're experiencing abundant life? It's because they do not heed the words of Christ that say, Beware and guard yourselves against the longings of having more, receiving more, and wanting more. The reality is, the majority of rich people they're just as miserable as most of the rest of us. Why? Because the eternal words of Christ ring steadfastly true, not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of possessions. A person, man or a woman, who always decides that they need more and more, desires more and more, suffers the miserable state of greed and covetousness. That's what they actually suffer from. That leads to, well, a necessary adjustment to our thinking. We do not have to long for other people's possessions, folks, to commit the sin of covetousness. Merely yearning to amass more exposes a heart that is covetous. It's a common misperception among Christians that needs to be corrected. Some believe that because there is a command, and there is in Exodus 20, to not covet your, your neighbor's stuff, that covetous refers only to a yearning for that which belongs to somebody else. But that's not accurate. That's not accurate. The Greek word in verse 15 for greed, it's the identical word as covetousness. And it's indicative of a person who wants to amass more and more. It doesn't matter whether you are swindling it from your neighbor, or even if you're earning it with your own labor. It can include your fancy for a neighbor's car, but it can also include window shopping with the wrong heart. Greed and covetousness, in fact, some translations use the word covetousness in, in verse 15. Greed and covetousness is a sin of the heart that always wants more. It's not just longing for your neighbor's stuff. It's a sin of the heart that always wants more. It indicates a heart that is m- and mind that are fixated on acquiring rather than fixated on serving God. It arises when materialism actually competes with God for your attention and your affection. That's what makes it an idol. So in Colossians 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes this same word. He said, greed, it amounts to idolatry. The greedy or covetous person, folks, is an idolater. They're worshiping a false God. No wonder Jesus says you cannot serve God and mammon. Now, mammon is a, an old Aramaic word, and it refers to wealth when it's personified as an object of worship. That's what mammon is. Wealth that receives worship, your worship, my worship. Here's the crucial part, the whole crucial part of this predicament. We, we need to listen closely, folks. Very closely. In Ephesians 5 verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes this, For this you know with certainty, For this you know with certainty, That no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater Has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This we know for certain. A covetous heart does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That ought to scare us. And in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, those whose hearts are are consumed with having more, receiving more, and wanting more, they're lumped in with the unrighteous who don't inherit the kingdom of God. Paul writes, Or do you not know that the the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be be deceived, he says. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. As Paul writes, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. Covetous idolaters, consumed with having more, receiving more, wanting more, will not inherit the kingdom of God because they invest their entire lives in serving an idol. You can't serve God and mammon. And this is probably the point where the the pastor could use an opportunity. Say, well, let's just get rid of the idol. All right? Let's just get rid of the idol. Cast it out of your home. Sell everything you own. Give the money to the church. But, folks, that would only short circuit the heart issue. Just throwing the idol out doesn't help you to stop longing for it. You see, if your mind is consumed with having more, receiving more, and wanting more, more possessions, more properties, more homes, more cars, and more money, the remedy is not as simple as just giving it away. Scripture concludes that the heart is covetous, not because you failed to give your stuff away, but because you have not repented of your sins an unchanged heart those who do not enter the kingdom of God perhaps you've heard if this is your condition perhaps you've heard and perhaps you have believed a false prosperity gospel that preaches it is God's desire to make you wealthy if so the God you worship today is mammon that is a false gospel uh, and if true you're likely not saved as this man in our passage today what have you believed you believe that god exists to make you wealthy what kind of god have you put your faith in this man in our passage he is the one who has been listening to jesus preach about heaven and hell things of great weight and gravity yet all he can think about is having more receiving more and wanting more all he can think about is his brother's inheritance when Jesus Christ is preaching the word of God because his heart is not changed it's filled with greed filled with covetousness folks if that describes you the remedy is not giving away everything you own the remedy is recognizing that this sin of idolatry has kept you from the living God. It's separated you from God. That the greatest love in your life is money. And you've bought the lie that acquiring more of it will eventually satisfy you at some point. But it hasn't delivered, has it? So you sit in misery, today still wanting more. Because you've not yet trusted Jesus who says your life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. Massive crowds, people are flooding to churches, prosperity churches every week because they adore money. And they rejoice when they hear a false gospel that that God wants them to have even more of it. Even more of it. They rejoice in such a gospel. All the while, the scriptural truth remains. When money is your idol, it indicates a heart that is covetous and separated from God. But Jesus came. He said, John 10.10, So that you could have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life. He did not amass possessions. He lived free from the love of money. As Hebrews 13 verse 5 affirms, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. You know, Christ lived perfectly without sin, no corruption, no greed of any kind, uh, no form of idolatry was found in Him. In a nutshell, folks, He is everything that we're not. He is everything That we are not. He lived a life that is pleasing to the Father when we have not. And then he offered up his life. He gave it of his own will in order that through spiritual rebirth that you might gain his life. The life that he sacrificed for you. He died on a cross. He endured the punishment and the death that you deserve so that today we can all be freed from the sin of idolatry. From idolatry and sexual immorality and every other sin that troubles your heart. Even the love of money. God is calling all to repent, turning our hearts from sin and toward Christ. As Scripture declares, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And once you receive Christ as Lord and Savior, you will recognize it's not this world at all. It's not this world at all, but the kingdom and the life to come that we're truly longing for, folks. That is what we are longing for. Your heart will be changed. You'll no longer be consumed with the anguish. It isn't anguish. Consumed with the anguish of always having more, receiving more, and wanting more. And instead, there will arise from within your heart a peace that surpasses all understanding along with a burning desire to know Christ, and to make Him known. Folks, it's only at that point that your thirst is going to be quenched. The only time the thirst for this world is going to be quenched. To the woman at the well, Jesus said, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, he shall never thirst. But the water that I will give will become in him a well of water springing up into heaven. Eternal life, folks. All of, most all of us have tried it. Quenching your thirst with the riches of the world. It, it's kind of like trying to satisfy yourself by drinking powdered chalk. You, you, it just leaves you dry. Materialism leaves you dry. And all you know to do is, well, I should probably just drink some more. Which only leaves you drier and drier. That's what materialism does. It doesn't quench anything. It just leaves you dry and in despair. Um, but he or she who drinks from the well of Christ, the well of eternal life, shall never thirst again. Whew. Which would you rather have? The well that springs up into eternal life with no thirst or drinking chalk for the rest of your life. That's what materialism does. It's like drinking chalk. Now, folks, I, I anticipate, we've got some great teenagers. You've already seen that. We've got some great teenagers. But I anticipate some of them, you know, have really never gotten out in the world and earned a wage and, and really acquired stuff of their own. You know, to, to some of you, this may sound like I'm speaking like the adults in Charlie Brown. Remember, you can never understand what they're saying. And and some might not understand what I'm saying because of youth. Because they haven't yet experienced the disillusionment of depreciating assets like cars and boats and RVs and everything else that loses value. They haven't suffered the burden of well, insurance costs, corroded engines, broken parts, and stolen property. My first real experience with a broken heart in this is I was really young. And we got our driver's license really young and up in North Dakota on the farm. And I got an old car, and I put in a new Kirkwood stereo. Nice stereo, amp. Back in that day, in a 78 Grand Prix. It broke down one night and I had to leave it parked in a dark alley. Somebody busted in and took it. Just broken. Everything leaves us broken. It's either going to rust, mods are going to eat it, someone's going to steal it. That's what the people out there at Mexico Beach learned. If someone doesn't take it, the hurricane's going to come and take it from you. We need to remember that old lady 90 year old woman said, because I'm all right with it. I'm all right with it because that's not where my faith lies. It's not where her joy was. Um, I don't want any of the young folks here to think that someday they'll be able to quench their thirst with possessions because you can't. You can't. Hear the words of Christ and avoid that error of this man. Um, But we're not provided the guy's age, are we? We don't know how old he is. And it's unnecessary to be told how he is because covetousness is a heart condition not related to age, not exclusive to age. There remains no shortage of older folks still trying to find the meaning of life through Corvettes. Got nothing against Corvettes. Some people still trying to find meaning in life in that type of pursuit. But at least most of us older folks, we speak the language I mean, we've been striving for years to maintain all of our stuff, right? That keeps falling apart and breaking. Somebody listening here might be in payment 76 of 120, just hoping that you get it paid off before the transmission falls out. That's our worries. And Scripture reminds us, your misery has come upon you, your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver, everything that you decided needed to be chromed, have rusted. It's rusted. And Jesus says that deterioration, it's what occurs to everything that we acquire in this world. Everything deteriorates. James says, what a misery. What a misery. And if you're already a Christian today if you're just searching for a door so maybe you can hop out of that squirrel cage of trying to keep up with life, trying to maintain all that you have, perhaps enjoy some peace for whatever the remainder of your life is, here's what I can advise you. Because with maturity and life experience, you have discovered the more you have, the more you have to worry about. So now we've finally reached the point in the message where I can tell you to give it all away. You can sell it all and you can give the money to the church or some other charity. Because if you want some really practical, some some really comforting advice, advice that will change your life, counsel, having less is better. Having less is better, folks. Because you don't need it all. You don't need it now. Most things we don't ever need. We don't need it. And if you don't believe me, just pan down a few verses, just for a moment, to verse 33, where Jesus supplies the remedy for worry. We'll look at it again in a couple weeks. But here's Jesus' advice. Verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near or nor, and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Folks, the lesson could not get any clearer. And our experience tells us it is true. Not even when a person has abundance... Does his life consist of possessions? We don't need a five-stall garage, folks. We don't need 50 pairs of shoes. We don't need everything that our heart desires. Sell what ails you. Do not store up for uh, for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. You see, you want abundant life? Eliminate the abundance. Eliminate the abundance. I, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Yet I'm not going to suggest that this prohibits us from, from having anything. A reliable car, comfortable shoes, warm coat, retirement plan. I don't think that's what this is suggesting.